0: Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Soul Radio, screenwriter of such films as Memoirs of a Geisha and Little Women and now first-time director Robin Swicord, who just released The Jane Austen Book Club, talks to L.A. Times columnist and KPCC host Pat Morrison about how her film depicts our fractured society in search of a semblance of community, about her first Austen adaptation with paper dolls, and how most of us settle for tiny bits of life instead of the full meal. Swicord and Morrison are joined by two cast members from the Jane Austen Book Club, Kathy Baker, whose film credits include The Cider House Rules and Cold Mountain, and Hugh Dancy, whose film credits include Black Hawk Down and King Arthur. Recorded this Tuesday before a live audience at Harmony Gold Theatre as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Pat Morrison. When I
1: saw all of you lining up outside, I thought that it was for the Oprah show because the turnout was phenomenal. And in a way, I think that Jane Austen is a sort of 19th century Oprah, someone through whom the prism of our own lives can be very much scrutinized and examined. I have a friend who lives in Winchester, a writer, and of course went to the cathedral there, and it reminded me very much of Jim Morrison's grave at Père Lachaise, except there were no marijuana cigarette butts lying around. (laughs) There were, of course, masses of people who were gathered there to worship, uh, rightly so, at the marker of Jane Austen. And the biggest crushing moment of my life with the publishing industry was as a child when I realized that Classics Illustrated did not publish any of Jane Austen's novels in the comic book form, which is now known as the graphic novel. We had Joan of Arc, who of course got burned at the stake, Emma Bovary, suicide, but no Jane Austen heroines. So we are well on the course of remedying that, including with tonight's program. And I'd like to begin with Robin to talk a little bit about the film, the making of the film, and your own influences with Jane Austen that you brought to bear here.
2: All right, what do you want first?
1: (laughs) First Jane Austen book you ever read and what you
2: thought of it. I think the first book I read as a child I was given by my school librarian. It was Pride and Prejudice. And I acted out Pride and Prejudice with my paper dolls a number of times. Uh, Probably my first adaptation. Uh, (laughs) I read Jane Austen successively through the different sort of epochs of my life. And um, I think that there were some books that I just didn't completely understand until I was older. Persuasion was one that I, I got much more as I got older. But I always loved the books. I wouldn't say that I was um, a J-knight. I wasn't one of those people that has to go to conventions and dress up in period clothing. And you know, I, I wasn't. You don't
1: like pantaloons?
2: You know, I, I like them. But actually, she didn't wear pantaloons. I can tell you that in her day, ladies wore nothing under there. Oh. So. I think this only so you know. <laughs> the male population. Thank you. <laughs> But um, I would say I had an interest. But what what really happened a few years ago was that I got interested in people who were obsessed with Jane Austen. And I had this idea to write a movie about a family of Jane Austen scholars. And it was called The Jane Prize. And I was in the process of working on that when I actually met Hugh Dancy, who came to do a table read for me. And I was also given a book, The Jane Austen Book Club, by Karen Joy Fowler, that John Kelly, the producer who used to run three different studios in Hollywood and is kind of a legendary figure, he called me in. I think he figured I had done the reading and I, could, I would be a good person to adapt this. In my first meeting with him, he said, and you will direct this. So it was all taken care of in the first meeting.
1: Most people have to fight to hear words like that.
2: I fought for 15 years, but from John Calley's lips to God's ear. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> One thing I noticed, a couple other films you, that you wrote, the Little Women and Memoirs of a Geisha they have a quality of an insular society that people think is one-dimensional, but in which entire universes of emotion and life can exist.
2: I think that is very true, and I think that it is something, um, certainly in the 19th century novel, the domestic sphere was kind of behind the veil, and that was very much what the Women was about, was what took place in that domestic sphere where men did not go. Um, and certainly it was true in Memoirs of a Geisha. And this, of course, it's not a closed world only given to women. There have been many wonderful, important novelists who said, if not for Jane Austen, n- not I. And so, um, and Rudyard Kipling was one of the people, who I think he called himself a Janeite. He was one of the first to say, I'm a Janeite. Um, so certainly men have w- always loved her books, and they have entered all six of them the Western canon. Um, You don't get there unless you're liked by the boys. So so, um, it isn't a closed world, but it does take place in people's living rooms initially. There's a kind of opening out purposefully in the film from the living room to the larger community because for me this film was so much about community, about recreating the Austin village.
1: How is it to adapt Jane Austen to the screen? Because you have such a range of writers, you can go from someone like William Faulkner, 300 pages of one paragraph of writing, to Elmore Leonard, and all you need to do is reset the margins of an Elmore Leonard book and you've got a screenplay. It's so
2: true. Well, this one was an interesting adaptation because those of you who know Karen Joy Fowler's novel know that it is essentially a collection of six short stories. Each one of these short stories... Is the character sketch of someone who is in this book club and it's only the thinnest narrative line that connects all of these stories to each other so it was an interesting formal exercise for her to write a novel in that form and an interesting exercise for me to try and translate that to a kind of cohesive dramatic narrative form that would move forward with some velocity and would not dwell on the past at all. Her, her short stories all kind of profile the childhoods of these people, which I knew I was not going to do when I decided to adapt the book.
1: And one of the things about the film, and we don't want to give it away because we'll have a listening audience and a television audience who will not have seen the film. We don't want to give away any oh, secrets. Okay. So. But to bring to bear into film the lives of these people for people who may not have read the Austen canon, was that difficult as well because you can't presume people's knowledge about certain aspects of it?
2: Well, my starting place in figuring out how to write the screenplay was to assume that the people watching the film would have no knowledge of Austen. And so um, for people who have read Austen, you probably get a little bit more of the humor than somebody who hasn't, but I always took pains to have someone tell a newcomer or someone the plot of the book that was going to be read. So you would have some sense of what it was going to be about. And then, of course, I think we're helped enormously that the conceit of every single book club is that people are talking about their own lives. They're just using the characters as a kind of mask. So if, even if you don't know who Mr. Collins is, you get very quickly from Kathy Baker's expression you know, that it can't be good.
1: Yeah, ew. Yeah. <laughs> It's so interesting. I think one of the things people like about reading Jane Austen is that you are submerged into a world of manners from this world, which seems to be a world of appetites. Mm. And yet there is a crossover. There are things in common with these worlds, as we, of course, see in the film and know. But what are the forces at work that you brought to the screenplay? Initially, we saw at the beginning, of course, the, the, the titles were about the pressures of everyday life, the nuisances and the annoyances of everyday life.
2: That's right. I was interested in making a film about how we live today. And I know that when we read Austen's novels, we do recognize ourselves in her. I think every generation feels that she's a contemporary writer talking about themselves, you know. We have we all in every generation, we worry about money, we fall in love with the wrong people, we make mistakes and judgments, our parents drive us crazy, all the things that are contained in Austen's novels. But specifically now, I wanted to make a film that was about the sort of fractured quality of our lives, how we're more connected than ever, ostensibly, but also never more isolated than now. And one of the things that isolates us is this, what Thomas Friedman calls uh, continuous partial attention. And I actually, for the shoot, had... uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? Continuous... (laughs) Yeah, excuse me. You saw how quickly I went to that (laughs) to explain. We're, We're... we're, when we repeat ourselves for friends, we, are, you know, we assume they're texting you know, at the same time that we're talking to them. So I wanted to show people in the midst of the lives as we live it, somewhat fractured. We, we have good intentions, but it's a semblance of community at the beginning. They're all making fun of their friend behind her back at the funeral of the dog and so forth. And they have, yeah, we should get together, but you know, she lives so far away. And there's just that sense that we can't be bothered because it's just too hard. But what happens is that these people meet enough hardship and through this, the power of this sort of den mother figure, so we should really get together. Somehow they get together in a Starbucks. Somehow this thing gets started. And we see this kind of progress toward focusing on each other and finally creating community. They, don't even, they didn't even know they were going to do that. They just thought they were going to somehow get through the easiest version of a book club, which is a book club where they've already read the books and they can kind of fake it.
1: <laughs> which is very reassuring, actually.
2: <laughs> um,
1: when you compare, the, as I said, the mannered world of Austin to the world where we so many things are new in the social settings that we almost have to make it up as we go along, is there a sense of even for writing a screenplay, the reliability of the structure of an Austen world and the chaos of the one that you were trying to bring around it?
2: Yes, I think the character Jocelyn does talk about the, the safety and order of her world. And I think that she sort of did invent the romantic comedy notion in which people are mistaken about each other all the time, and there's someone that they don't like at the beginning, and then later they fall in love with them. Or you know, the family obstacles, uh, social obstacles. You can't be with that person because you know, like Lady Catherine de Bourgh. You know, obviously, you must say that you're not interested in him because you could never marry into that class. And those kind of obstacles, which are just the lifeblood of romantic comedy, she had present in all of her novels, and we've been sort of riding her coattails ever since. Certainly, Hollywood has. So those things were all present. They were just gifts to this story, and I didn't discover that. Karen Joy Fowler did. She went in and made a kind of, I'm going to write a novel about a book club in which people's lives parallel the obstacles and the lives and the characters of the people in Austen's novels. So there was a lot to work from, because I was drawing both from her novel and also from all of Austen to create um, that the safety, as you say, you know, the order of the sort of standard romantic comedy, you know, beginning, middle, and end.
1: What were the logistics, I gather from some production notes, Kathy Baker was saying, that you kept a schedule? This is unheard of. Is there an award at the Oscars for this, Kathy? I don't know.
2: There's an award when you turn your film in and the Bond Company doesn't take the movie away from you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the reward.
0: You're listening to filmmaker Robin Swicord with Pat Morrison. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Next week on Socalo Radio, we present the demon dog of American crime fiction, James Elroy, on becoming a crime writer in LA. What a place. What a town.
1: What a sensibility. What a mantle. To inherit, what a gift I was given, what a history I was bid to recreate.
0: In this event, recorded as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, Elroy dazzles a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library. In a poetic and profane eulogy, he praises Los Angeles streets walked, jails inhabited, tragedies suffered, and books read. That's next time on Socalo Radio, 9 p.m., Sundays on 89.3 KPCC. More information is at our website, SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy join filmmaker Robin Swicord with Pat Morrison. Don't go away. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
3: Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by California State University, Fullerton. Hosting the Upward Bound Program, a federally funded educational program designed to assist low-income, first-generation students with the skills and motivation necessary to complete high school and successfully enter and excel in college. Cal State Fullerton, celebrating 50 years of creating opportunities for future generations to discover, innovate, and achieve. More information at fullerton.edu.
1: Is there no place that advertisers won't put their messages? The lines dividing spaces at a San Fernando Valley parking lot got turned into advertising strips for the show Desperate Housewives. Advertisers themselves are desperate. As the world gets saturated with ads on toilet stalls and restaurant menus, they have to find more unusual and intrusive places. And for women behind bars, the only power they have may be the power of language. A writer who taught writing to women prisoners is here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m.
0: Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Here again is filmmaker Robin Swycourt and, joining the discussion, actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy with Pat Morrison what
1: was it, what was it like the working on the film and i'm I will ask our actors as well in a minute.
2: Well, for me, I was blessed with wonderful producers like Julie Lynn and um, John Callie. I had a great. Uh, first AD. A first AD is, I called him Vinny the Clock. His name was Vincent Lascombe, and he stood right here. He sounds goes, like a member of the Gambino family. Yeah, exactly. He that Doesn't tough? He, No, no, he's actually very kind of sweet, but um, that was the joke in calling him Vinny the Clock, is that he was this very sweet kind of European gentleman. And every photograph I have of him from the set photographer on the set, He's, by, he's literally biting his fingernails in every single thing. And he would just stand here going, you have 15 minutes, you don't have time to get the shot off. You know, every day was like an impossible day, and he was just constantly looking at his watch. And he really kept us on track. We had actors who came so prepared. And we just, uh, you know, were, I never had to worry that they would come not knowing the lines or not ready to play, not really to really, you know, do the scene so um, we just kept moving. We had, we had just fabulous crew. And it is kind of a miracle when I look back. I think, how in the world did we do that in 30 days? But, you know, it happened. Somehow it happened.
1: Amazing. And I think the result uh, speaks for itself, as you have all seen. Well, Kathy and Hugh, what was it like working for Vinnie the Clock? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, it pretty much describes every AD,
5: doesn't
2: it? Yeah, you know? but I think
5: she was really Vinnie the Clock.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> her first film, her first uh, directorial um, effort, how was she? Plug your ears, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> she was
4: extremely organized, um, knew exactly what she wanted. She was our... our she, you call me the den mother of the, of the cast, you were our den mother.
5: I think there are well, I was going to say two kinds of, of first-time directors, and that you know, actually, writer-directors in this case. There are there are first-time directors that are really confident, and then there are the first-time directors that are really confident.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and if you're lucky,
5: you work for the first kind. <laughs> you, you know, and Robin was the first kind. I mean, her confidence was justified basically. So she was confident enough to send the crew away for the first hour and a half of the day on on the, on the days that we had the bigger scenes to film and work with the cast and rehearse and figure out the scene, and she knew that that was good economizing, and a lot of people would have felt like that was, you know, that, that a lot of people don't understand the value of that time, so we, we all benefited from her understanding of the process.
1: I'll ask each of you the question I asked to Robin, which is your first encounter with Miss Austin.
4: Oh, I can't really remember. I mean, I, I think I read Pride and Prejudice in college. I read Sense and Sensibility sort of just for fun. I reread Pride and Prejudice in my book club about a year ago. And I read Emma when I got cast in this part because I was trying to read all six. I did not make it to all six. Um, I'm a reader, but I'm not a, a Jane fanatic. I, I like her as well as I like a lot of people. So, And I actually was not playing a Jane Austen character. I was playing a modern day right. woman, so yeah. there was... It was a different kind of of research that I would do than the writer-director would do. You?
5: Actually, very similar to Kathy. I I guess I read Pride and Prejudice at at school. Um, I don't remember the experience at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I went back and read it again, though, subsequently, and enjoyed it. (laughs) And I've read, uh, you know, I don't know some or all or one of the other subsequently.
1: Uh, what drew you, Kathy, to the character in this, this wonderful woman who'd been married, what, five or six times? I think she's matching Henry Eighth on that go-round. So.
4: <laughs> well, you've answered the question. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty interesting character. Uh, I love Bernadette because I think on the surface she seems to be somebody who's very... Happy and positive, and bringing people together. Let's have a book club, grabbing people out of movie lines, taking them out for ice cream. But I've been married six times. But you know, she's a woman who doesn't have children, doesn't have a husband at the moment, whose best friend is her goddaughter, who's really her goddaughter through her third husband, and that goddaughter's best friend and that goddaughter's daughter. So I think Bernadette is someone who goes home at night and is lonely and reads books, books are her best friends, and I like that all of that is underneath this very positive, generous, uncomplaining person because if she were just all those things I just said, it would be kind of boring.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Hugh, what about your character, who could so easily have tipped, I think, into parody or self? Absorption one way or the other, and you managed to walk quite a lovely fine line there.
5: Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. I was just listening to Kathy, and I never really thought deeply about Griggs' past life, so to speak. And I think the reason for that is that the basic facts are, are laid out. You know, we know he's made some money, he's, he's worked, and he's, he's comfortable but his past romantic life, for example. And I think the reason for that is that the central fact about him is that he's very, very happy where he is. I suspect he always has been. He's, you know, he's probably not when he was very young, but he's comfortable in his own skin. And so he's not really carrying around with him whatever he may have gone through in the past, or whatever damage he may have suffered. He's, I mean, he may be lonely, but I, I expect he's okay with that as well. I, and that sounds like a massive get out clause for an actor. <laughs> but in fact, it was a real pleasure to play somebody like that, because I don't think particularly the nominally the male romantic character is very often portrayed like that. that, that the quality that's held up to be admired is that they're just comfortable in their own skin, even though they're a little nerdy, a little, you know, a little awkward. It tends to be the, the polar opposite of that. that, that um, that they're, they're des- like the people in the movies tend to be desperately trying to be people in the other movies.
6: <laughs> you know I mean?
1: And Greg is,
5: is absolutely not like that.
3: That's,
5: um, and that's what And that's what I liked about him.
1: The, the ensemble nature of it allowed you to play off everybody else, um, but were there, rather like a pinball machine, were were you looking for those moments of playing off, or was the character, especially yours, Kathy, you had that self-sufficiency, and the characters ended up playing off you because you were almost a lodestone in a way for these
4: women? Well, it's all in the writing, you know. I mean, you very kindly make it sound like I did that. I mean, I really just played the part that was written, and um... she did do
5: it. <laughs> <laughs> did she not.
4: wrote it actually. <laughs> what did I do?
5: Not.
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually the whole cast made quite an effort to hang out. We had lunch together. We would run lines together.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: It was a great group. It was it was a really good group.
5: It, it was, and it's except re- for that it's, one. It's well, that was that terrible. we she's like No, she's not, not here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we really good group. We had the opportunity, and actually, I, I completely agree with Kathy that it comes down to the writing. In this case, not only good writing, but writing that contained several scenes that were extended scenes, a sustained ten-page scenes, involving all six characters, central characters, all talking over each other, through each other, across each other with different, but fully realised, but different voices. And A, that's a joy to do as an actor, and it's very rare, particularly in writing for the screen. It's like it's, a theater. It's much more theatrical, and so it's in that sense it's more demanding. But B, when you practice it, which we only did for a day and a half, uh, because it's more demanding, you learn a lot more in the process of doing it. It's, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's rehearsal, but it's it's self-evident. By doing it, you learn about yourself through working with the others, mm. and uh, and that's I think that's why in the movie we work well together as a group because Robin wrote dialogue that allowed us to work together, that allowed us to learn about our own characters, and there you
1: go. Raman, how did that work? It it put me in mind of of, uh, Howard Hawks with the characters talking fast, talking over each other, and they wanted to be heard, but they wanted to listen at the same time, and we're straining to do it too. It's not an effort, but you know that everybody is so engaged in the conversation. That's how people really talk.
2: Well, I guess there are two parts to the answer. The first thing is that um, we were able to run the scenes enough that the actors found the natural conversational rhythm, and within that they could then begin to play. And I actually saw myself, um, these two particular actors did not go to all of the rehearsal that was available to us because they were both shooting other things when we started rehearsal. So they joined us late, but we did do rehearsal with some of the other people in twos and threes. We never got the full day of book club rehearsal until after Hugh had already worked a couple of days. So it was that particular day of running those book clubs was a day full of discovery. And what I felt was that my job was just to remove obstacles so that the actors could be released. They could release themselves into play. So sometimes it was a matter of answering a question about the text. Sometimes it was reminding them of something about the character. Or sometimes it was just sending the crew away so that they could run it and find the rhythm. So when they had that, the other part of the challenge was the second thing, which is Mary Ann Brandon, my editor, who's actually here in the audience tonight. Where are you? Do you want to stand up and say hi? Where is she? Up in the back there. Up in the back. And she, did. She, did, she did such a beautiful job in cutting the natural rhythms of performance so that that actually did end up on the screen. It's an achievement in itself when you think of comedies that almost work, movies that you've, you would sit in the theater and you hear how funny the lines are, but somehow it's not actually that funny. And very often it comes down to someone knowing how to cut the scene together so that those natural rhythms actually play.
1: What about, Kathy, what about the timing of that? I mean, the, the, the romantic comedy timing, but it's so, it is theatrical, as you were saying a little earlier. It's, it's just so nuanced. How do you pull it off?
4: I guess, again, I, I just want to say, I mean, it, it, it's... You're
5: gonna pass the buck again, aren't you? <laughs> I am gonna pass
4: the buck to the writer, I am. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes a scene just plays itself. I guess if everyone's doing Well i will ju- jump in if
5: job. I may. I mean it's true, but, Go but ahead. I'd like... no, I'm going to why, because I'm going to because I, now, I know Q,
4: You interrupt me. Every
5: <laughs> I'm sorry, but we all we sat there watching Kathy and and I think that it's all very it is in the writing, but you need, you know, you need a, a good example in a group like this to know how to do it and Kathy was the perfect example. She's just skilled and and, and generous but concentrating on her own game a very American phrase, concentrating on our own game. And so I'm going to steal back a little of the credit for Kathy.
0: Thank you. You're listening to filmmaker Robin Swicord and actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy with Pat Morrison. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This fall, the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series continues to invite top-notch guests. LACMA's Michael Govan tells the Hammer Museum's Anne Philbin about his take on the L.A. art scene, conservative luminary Michael Gerson argues for what he calls heroic conservatism, and critically acclaimed novelist Francisco Goldman visits Socalo to discuss the themes of his first non-fiction book, The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop? About the murder of Guatemala's leading human rights activist, Bishop. Juan Gerardi. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. I just want
2: to let you know that I love Zocalo. I think it's a great place to have a public forum. Often when I come to one of your talks, I hear people say something where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you just said that in public. Can you really say that? And it's going on the radio. It's fantastic. I don't... I could think of very few places in Los Angeles where you have a forum where people could do something like that.
6: I think
1: the event is fabulous, and the food and drink is fabulous, so it's been a successful evening. This is only the second time we've come to one of their events, but we like the fact that it's free, for one thing, and that they get really good, interesting speakers who have something important to say. I
6: like the food. (laughs) I live in Long Beach, so... I can get here by train to enjoy the cultural activities that are available in downtown Los Angeles.
0: Zocala is excellent. It just gives you a lot of diversity about the city that you don't get in the mainstream press. And I just think there's a wealth of information to be garnered by any Zocala program that's offered.
4: I was completely blown away.
0: I love the availability on
6: podcasts because occasionally I'll miss a program. And it lets me go back and pick it up. The quality is also very nice. I enjoyed
2: for quite a bit you give them some great things to think about and then after that you feed them i mean it's all about the people here
0: if you have comments critiques or kudos about socalo radio send them to comments at dot la.org that's c-o-m-m-e-n-t-s at z-o-c-a-l-o-l-a.org now we return to filmmaker robin Swicord and actors kathy baker and hugh dancy with pat morrison
1: now, was that really champagne in that bottle? I like to think there was.
0: Oh no,
1: <laughs> I'm a lightweight. Are you kidding? Eric von Stroheim used to, to insist on champagne in his champagne scenes. I'm very sorry. It must have been the budget. We have rules right? about
4: that now. It was <laughs> o-
2: only the budget. On our next film, champagne in every shot. Oh, I'm glad to hear about that.
4: So. Um, and be- underneath everyone's feet tonight.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> a bottle of fake champagne.
1: You you you're working this as as derived from Jane Austen, but but again, I think a, a lot of people here are interested in your take on Austen and why, in a sense, she has become almost Shakespearean in the plasticity of her characters. Shakespeare is played in Japan and you know in, mm-hmm. in medieval mode and right. in uh, virtually any country in every culture, he can be adapted. And the same seems to be true for Austen, and certainly the popularity of Austen elsewhere. What is it about the characters that makes them so universal and so timeless?
2: I just think that Jane Austen knew how to draw a bead on human psychology, particularly human social psychology, and that it is true, and I wouldn't dare say that it's true in every culture, but I think that many people... Um, through time, in many different cultures, have come to Jane Austen and said, I see myself. The, uh,
1: the interplay, again, between the characters that I think so many people were drawn to, how, or did that resonate to anything in your life, Kathy? Do you have a book group? Do you have...
4: I do have a book group. I have a book club. I've been in a book club for about six years now. Um, they're all, um, what we have in common is our children go to the same school, um, it's only women because, you know, <laughs> women really are the best.
2: You see now what you women. had to put up with for 30 days.
5: <laughs> I was educated. I got, I got schooled. Yeah, we we're
1: <laughs>
4: the University of Kathy. <laughs> Actually, Amy Brennan. <laughs> yeah.
1: You had a very funny bit talking about, and, and my book group has men and women in it, about how men conduct themselves in book groups, and you showed that they dominate the conversation by dominating the conversation. Yeah.
4: My, one of my favorite scenes is when I have that long monologue eating ice cream, and I keep interrupting Emily Blunt. It's wonderful. So men interrupt, she says, interrupting Emily. They <laughs> <laughs> go on and on.
1: Hugh, are there book group-like experiences which really end up not being so much about the book at all but about the personalities in the group? Mm, Well, I went to Oxford
5: University for three years. That's the world's worst book group. (laughs) Um, I've never been a member of a book club or a book group. I can easily imagine that the personalities or the different agendas might take over. I'd like to believe they would some of the time. And I don't know if I would be the ideal book club member myself for that reason.
1: Right, you'd be too declamatory to...
0: Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah I... <laughs> well, it, they, I think... Would it be men and women or just men?
5: What, in the book club I don't want to be a member yeah. of? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Groucho Marx.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Thank
5: you. Exactly right. No, I, I don't know. I've, 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 uh, I mean having only thought about it recently because of this movie, I, I've always I felt like maybe it would either be too high or or too low, and it's very unlikely that everybody would be on the same level. And my tolerance levels are maybe not well developed enough (laughs) to to reach that order.
1: Robin, in the movie Crash, we had the example of people uh, almost engineering contact, sometimes violently in their lives, just to have contact. In this, people have to structure contact into their lives in a modern world because there seems to be so little that at least is of consequence that doesn't involve screaming at someone in India on a telephone. Um, so so how, is that how you conceived it, how people bring reality, bring um, authenticity into their lives that feel in so many ways so inconsequential with, uh, with the outside world and, and its machinery?
2: Right. I think that it surprises them. That is exactly what happens is that they construct meaning by getting together. But I think that when they start, it really is just like, well, I guess we have to do this because Bernadette insists that we get together and have this book club. And, and you know, we're all right. scared of
1: Bernadette, right? Yeah, and, we're, <laughs> and,
2: we, you know, and she means a lot to us, and you know, she'll just keep hounding us, and so let's just do it. And she has some kind of, she's a nexus person. She's good at pulling people together, and then they want to do it. And then there's Sylvia who's like, well, I'm not going to sit home alone because it's just so depressing. My husband has left me. And everybody has their own little reason for wanting to be there. I think Prudy is not someone who makes friends very easily. And so this seems like, oh, this is a way. Even in France? (laughs) <laughs> well, if she would ever could get to France, maybe she would find her people. But meanwhile, she's at home with a guy that has the sports channel on all the time. You know, So she wants to get out of the house and be with people who will discuss books with her. So everybody has a kind of selfish reason, in a way, for wanting to be in the group, as well as sort of think, okay, I guess we should do it because Bernadette's making us. But I think that the thing that's surprising is this, and I think all of us have this somewhere in our lives, where you get sort of um, somebody just kind of forces you into being on a committee that you don't want to be on or there's something where you get dragged into some kind of uh, volunteer thing and you think, I'm going to do this one time and I'm going to be done. And you just kind of get hooked and you start feeling a responsibility to the people that you're working with. And then you're sort of one of them, you know. You don't. <laughs> 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 now you, now you're really in a book club. You know what are you going to do? It's an enforced society. It, in other it, words. The, the society itself has a kind of gravity, but wonderful things can happen in that. I mean, I had that happen to me when I got pulled into doing volunteer work at my kid's school. you know, as time went by, I just kept having to take on more and more. I didn't even know where the work was coming from. I ended up on the board of the school, and then this, we ended up, this board, building a secondary school. And it was one of the more fantastic experiences of my life, looking back over that nine years, how much that experience caused me to grow. And I think that that is one of the things that happens when people do allow themselves to be undistracted, to focus, and to construct something meaningful.
1: And it's become something of a luxury for all of us, I think.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't have to be. We just have to say, all right, I'm putting down my BlackBerry, and I am going to go to my book meeting. You know, I'm going to go do something with another person instead of just there's a kind of superficial glide that you do through life as you're texting somebody and you're on the phone. And we should really get together and all. You know, it's just it's just like it's just like little tiny bites of life without ever really sitting down and having the meal of life.
1: And maybe the machinery serves as the screen or the impediment to us that uh, the orders and manners of uh, Regency England served in the Austen novel, something to be broken through.
2: Well, that may be very true. Certainly it functions the way, I guess, social class did. Although someone was pointing out today, it was a very astute comment about how now there are all kinds of other unwritten social laws around all the various means of communication, like...
1: I haven't seen any in evidence. <laughs> well,
2: but no, but it's like, you know, oh, if he, you know, if he texted you, he's not that serious about you. He really has to call, you know. It's like you, you, you have to... Re- he, he did it, but he put an emoticon at the end, which kind of undercuts the message. You know? you, you're, you're, you're having to decode in a completely different <laughs> way. <laughs>
0: You've just heard filmmaker Robin Swicord and actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy with Pat Morrison. In a moment, questions from the Socalo audience. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. On Wednesday, October 3rd, join us for An Evening with Michael Govan. 43-year-old Michael Govin recently completed his first year as director of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. He visits Socalo to chat about his meteoric rise through the art world, his dreams of turning L.A. into the new cultural capital of the U.S., and the things this city must do to help us get there. Ann Philbin, who has been widely credited with turning the Hammer Museum around, will quiz Govan about everything from Jeff Koons, his take on the L.A. art scene, and why he thinks Los Angeles is the most beautifully named city in the world. That's Wednesday, October 3rd, 7 p.m. at the Los Angeles Central Library. And on Tuesday, October 9th, Michael Gerson will relate why we need heroic conservatism. Michael J. Gerson, the speechwriter who penned many of George W. Bush's most influential speeches, is considered by many Democrats and Republicans to be the most influential White House speechwriter since the Kennedy administration's Ted Sorensen. Known around the administration as the moral compass, Gerson was more than a speechwriter. He was also a trusted insider helping to make policy decisions. Gerson visits SoCalo to talk about some of the themes from his new book, which is both a manifesto for the Republican Party and a memoir of his time in the Bush White House. He argues that America needs a new type of conservatism, one that promotes government rooted in moral values and initiates compassionate conservative social strategies such as international AIDS funding and anti-poverty initiatives. That's Tuesday, October 9th, 7 p.m. at the Center at Cathedral Plaza. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z O C A L O L A dot O R G. Don't go away, stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
6: To look at her, 86, quiet, unassuming. You wouldn't imagine Kate Nolan had tended critically wounded soldiers from Normandy through the Battle of the Bulge. Recently, she received the French Legion of Honor.
0: Madame Catherine Nolan, au nom du président de
6: la République. I'm Susan Stamberg. Tomorrow on morning edition, combat nurse Nolan and her continuing service to this
3: country. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. 89.3 KPCC is now broadcasting in HD digital stereo. With a new HD radio receiver, you can listen to our main service and two alternative channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish language news service of the BBC, and the current adult alternative music from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD radio, please visit kpcc.org.
0: Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. It's time for the Socalo audience to ask the questions of filmmaker Robin Swycourt and actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy.
6: This is to the uh, director. Uh, What did the original author think of your film?
0: (laughs) Oh, good question.
2: I think I was extraordinarily fortunate not only in having a wonderful book to adapt but a wonderful person to read the first screenplay and, and be gracious and say that she liked it. And she has been very supportive of us. She did come to the set. More importantly, she let us come visit her in Sacramento and she drove us around in her Prius while we took photographs in Sacramento so that we could come back to Los Angeles County and try to find locations that looked like the places where she lived. And I actually saw her this weekend. We did a Q&A together. And it was so interesting to hear her talk about the book and kind of compare it to the film. She's really been very lovely about it.
6: My name is Joan Hunt. I thought you assembled a magnificent cast for this film. And I would be curious to, to hear more about how the casting was handled, especially Emily Blunt. Ah.
2: <laughs> we are all members of the Emily Blunt fan club, I think, in this cast. I had an unusual luxury for a director, and especially for a first-time director, and that Sony Classics not only agreed to make a movie about something as obscure as people who like to read. That sounds like a big, (laughs) hot Hollywood movie, doesn't it? But they also left me um, fairly unfettered in terms of my casting. As long as I brought them a strong ensemble, they would be happy. And I started with John Calley saying, I've given the script to Maria Bello, and she would like to meet you. So getting Maria Bello on board was the first beautiful accomplishment, because she trusted a first-time director. And because she had trusted a first-time director, then I could go to other actors. And they would say, oh, well, if Maria Bello is going to do it, it must be OK. So that, it helped enormously. I went to Emily Blunt next because I had seen her in this little movie called My Summer of Love. If you haven't seen it, definitely try to. The very, very small British film. And she was so funny in the film, and it's not a comedy, but she had these little moments of timing that were just exquisitely funny. And she was moving, and she plays a kind of villainous girl, and you don't realize for a long time what a villain she is. And I loved how complex she was, and I loved her slightly wounded quality of this sort of brave brash girl who's hiding a big secret hurt. And when I saw her in The Devil Wears Prada, the summer that I was starting to cast, I just thought, you know, this girl, could, she can do anything. She's just amazing. She's hilarious. She's, I, I thought that she playing the vulnerability of that kind of bitchy girl was such a beautiful way to go and beautiful choice. And when I first brought her up to Sony Classics, they thought I was talking about Anne Hathaway because I would say the girl was in <laughs> Devil Wears Prada. Go, no, no, no. It's the other one. The other one. And so Emily happened to be in town. And so I just met with her and, of course, didn't ask her to audition. I just offered her the role. And we had a nice time together, and she said yes. And not only did she say yes, but she did the unusual thing that actors almost never say that they want to do. She said that she would come and read the other side in these auditions for the male roles, which helps the men reading so much. Don't I have to do it with you know a middle-aged female casting director reading the other part of a love scene you know so it was it was great that she came in and I had the fantastic thing of being able to watch her while the other actors were working with her and to see her real reaction to them and it helped me know who to cast because of the chemistry that I saw there And so it proceeded like that. I I could just sort of thoughtfully try to go to the next person and the next person. Originally, I had thought of Kathy Baker as Mama Sky. She had been suggested to me by my producer, Julie Lynn. After I met Kathy, I realized that I wanted her to play Bernadette. So that took a little bit of time for that to be okay.
5: Who suggested that?
2: Um... It was Kathy. Wasn't it? <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. Yes, <laughs> I, As I said to Kathy, I raised my daughters saying a certain thing to them, which is that it's very hard for women to say, I want, to say what they want. And I really appreciated Kathy saying, I want the role of Bernadette. So I thought it was great. And um, she says she didn't say it to me directly. She said it to her agent, but We'll let that dispute lie. Um, <laughs> but I did get the message, and after I had met her, I just kept thinking of her as Bernadette until I finally realized that I really just wanted her to play Bernadette. They could talk about all these other people who were sort of more, more high-profile, but I, I really wanted a very well-balanced ensemble, and I wanted Kathy for Bernadette. So, And I went through a, a different kind of version of that for casting Hugh, which was that I had he had done me this enormous favor of coming and doing a table read of the Jane Prize at Sony and was so funny in that reading that I thought of him for Greg, but he was already cast to do Evening, so he wasn't available, and we coincided almost exactly, and so we went through a long kind of casting process and talking to different people, but at the end of it, I just finally called up his agent and said, isn't there any possible way that he could finish out of Evening? And uh, they did us a favor. They killed off his character. So he could (laughs) leave that set and literally, like, get on another airplane, arrive here, you know, get a haircut, and come to the set. And so that was why he worked for two days before he um, got to rehearse, because he just literally came off the set of evening. It was a fantastically generous thing to do.
1: And now that your character from evening is dead, there will be no sequel called night or anything. Prequel. Like that. Prequel. Prequel. <laughs> prequel, yeah. prequel. We can do morning, buddy, afternoon. The prequel. Mid- That's right. Morning, mid- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Morning. <laughs> Another question, please. Hi. All um, we've had are questions from men until. Oh, there we go. All I'm right. Not a man. Sorry, but. Um, I'm Natasha Zwick. I actually have met you guys before. I was on the set for the Jane Austen Society of North America, so I guess that makes me one of the fanatics. Right. Hello. Robin welcome back. Deliver. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to know what uh, current projects Robin is working on, and as a single fan, how Hugh's relationship is going right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's America.
4: I think, you, I think you should answer your question first, too.
1: I guess we're all ears, Hugh.
5: <laughs> Ten words or less... How is your... Um, thanks.
4: Great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's all you're going to get out of him. What am I working on? You know, I think that I've done that classic thing that you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to finish one movie and not have the next one lined up in case this one tanks. So I've already blown it. I don't have the next one lined up. I have things that I'm thinking about, but I haven't made any decisions yet. And I feel like I just need some quiet time in order to know what I want to give myself to, because it's a very long time when you're directing. When you're writing, usually you get fired after a few months, but when you're directing, you just, you're really there for the duration, so you better love the thing. So I'm still, I'm still finding what I want to do.
6: Could you share with us your thinking as to why the book club was largely women? I kind of felt left out. I felt that this was a kind of a girly movie. And could you share with us
1: why you didn't have a balance?
6: <laughs> oh.
2: I think it's because we just don't yeah. like guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's you <that>. told. <laughs> no, you shouldn't take offense, because I just want to point out that this came from a novel written by Karen Joy Fowler, who was in a book club. And she's in a book club that I believe is mostly women. I think that she was writing what she knew. And I think that there may be book clubs that are evenly divided or are all male, it's possible, but that isn't what her novel was about. So we were really slavishly following her macabre design. (laughs) And I think it's I think it's worth a question and and
1: we can have a show of hands here. How many of you who are in book clubs are in all women book clubs?
5: (laughs) How many of you are in mixed book clubs? How many all male book clubs?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, maybe exactly. we can undertake this briefly. Why? Why That's is that? The why, question. Kathy? Why is a book club a, a, so because often a female
4: undertaking? Men would have to listen to each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Cue for the defense. I don't,
4: um. I, I don't know. How do you play basketball and you know, talk
5: about a book? Yeah, I had I had five weeks of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Well, I
4: don't that. know why. Why the men in the audience? Why aren't you in book clubs? Is there a line in the movie, or there's a line in the like book? That men read
5: to. What is it? They don't there's, like to let go. Men don't. Of they hoard what they, read
4: men it? hoard what they read. Men hoard yeah. what they yeah. read. Yes, yeah, yeah, they the read. One. I said. <laughs> 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 but men don't have. Com- we women are wired for community, and men are wired for protection. And so, so we get outside with a gun. You know, go and show you know, <laughs> me a mastodon that go I can shoot eat a book after today. my book club.
2: I don't now, know. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I that. want to say one thing in defense of this, though. Innumerable men. We've been doing a number of these screenings over the last several weeks. Innumerable men have come up to me afterwards and said, "You know, I didn't think I would like this movie because of the title, Jane Austen Book Club." So I didn't think it was a movie for me. But actually, I'm going to send my friends, which is very gratifying. Because when I thought about making this film, I did not think, oh, let's go make a movie for the girls. What I thought was, I want to make a movie for people who love to read. And to me, that's a big group of people.
6: My name is Dorothy Slifko. This is for the screenwriter. I'm a non-reader of Jane Austen. I, I really enjoyed the movie. But for the women, I was looking at the interaction between their characters. I was following their interaction with each other and their interaction, what was developing in their lives. As they spoke in the book club, I didn't listen to any of them at all. And I didn't listen to them because they had, they seemed to be coming with preformed opinions. The only one that I was listening to was the man, and not because I felt that he was offering a man's opinion, but I felt that his opinion was being Hugh's character his opinion of the novels was being formed as he read them. Did you mean for me to only be listening to him? I mean, only on the book club. I don't mean about the lives of the characters in the film, but only in the, the book club. Of,
5: of hmm? You mean just the opinions
6: of
5: Austen? You mean just their opinions of Jane Austen?
6: Yes, no. only within the book club. But do, do you as the screenwriter I, mean for me to be only listening to Hugh's character?
4: Because could, could I just remind you that in the book club... It's a group of women women who have already read Jane Austen. That was the premise of the book club. And we sort of mistakenly invite Greg into the book club who has never read Jane Austen. So you exactly mm. got from the film exactly what was written. That
5: I am the only character is who's discovering. That the one who is
4: discovering. Yeah. And we all do know Jane Austen very well and are very opinionated. Uh, so I'm just saying that again, um, yeah. Robin was following the, the book
2: Well, I intended for you to listen to every word and and have it inscribed on your memory (laughs) so that tomorrow you could repeat it back to me verbatim. So if you were only listening to Greg, you were listening to a wonderful actor. I should be grateful for that, I guess.
6: I hope this turns out to be a question and not a comment. But uh, in reaction to the comment about uh, not listening and people came with preconceived ideas, What happened to me in seeing the film that didn't happen in reading the book was that I saw that, yes, they had read the books before, but what happened to them during the course of the book club because of what was happening in their lives at that point was that their ideas changed. And that's what really I thought was so meaningful to me because that's what happens in my book club, uh, yeah. and
5: I, I, I going that's going say, what it was about. I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt, um, but I was going to say that I, I think that those those characters that have fixed ideas about the novels in the book club, actually those those fixed ideas really just reveal what's going on in their lives and what's going on in their minds about their lives at that time, and what they what they think of as very solid, grounded opinions, are essentially just help or whatever it might be. You know. So. Um, so, so yes, I thought. I thought being being opinionated is just as revealing as being as being uncertain in the context of the, of the book club.
0: Hi, my name is Gordon, and uh, this is for Robin. As one of a long line of writers who have made the transition to hyphenates, congratulations! Thank you. How did you prepare for the transition, and how did you train to become a director? Did it just come instinctively? Did you? do any kind of specific training? What, what, what prepared you for that new role?
2: I think that I had been preparing for this basically most of my life. But I specifically, about 13 years ago, made a short film, half-hour film, which was um, financed by Touchstone and a grant. And it wasn't meant for distribution or broadcast. It was just a way of encouraging writers to make the move into directing. And so um, that short film played at the Aspen Shorts Fest. It actually closed their festival that year. It was very exciting for me. And I started then getting offered jobs to write for not very much money. And I could then attach myself as a director. But none of those projects got made. So I ended up working on films that I wrote that other people were directing, and, and a couple of times I was a producer, which kept me around the, the, the margins of it so I could watch and so forth. But I, just was, I was constantly, as I wrote, rehearsing how I would shoot something. So every act of writing for me was also a way of imagining direction. So for me, the great thing was that when I finally got to stand up, and do the work itself, I felt as if I had already been doing it a long time. But I was helped in that delusion by having wonderful producers who I could turn to and ask questions of, and a very seasoned DP who protected me from my own ignorance, and wonderful seasoned actors who, um, if I just got out of their way, would probably do just a really good job. So I did learn a lot in doing this, but I did feel somewhat prepared by the career that I had had as a writer.
1: And any final comments from our actors about... Uh, I would just like to
2: say that you were also a photographer for many
4: years. Did you say That's that? That's right, I did No, all, I, started, I started as a photographer. As photographer. Yeah. Where, I mean, all of that adds to her great expertise as a director. Yeah. Hard to believe it was the first time, I have to tell you. Absolutely.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
4: I want to thank you all for coming, and, and I'd please like be... to say I really like your white shoes.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and on that note,
1: <laughs> And please be generous in your thanks to our panel.
0: You've been listening to filmmaker Robin Swicord, actors Kathy Baker and Hugh Dancy, with Pat Morrison. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our many free events around town. For more info, go to socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for SoColo Radio is Peter Stenzhol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thanks for tuning in.
3: Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by the California Endowment.